Welcome to A Story of Us, Our Humanity, History, and Department. This podcast is produced entirely by the graduate students at The Ohio State University's Department of Anthropology and in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. I am Emma Legan, and today I am hosting a special bonus episode with Dr. Larissa Swiddell from the City University of New York. Dr. Swiddell is here to present a talk on campus, and we're very happy to have her. Welcome, Dr. Swiddell. Thanks for having me. So you're in Ohio to talk about social behavior and sexual conflict in Hamadryas baboons. So starting with the basics, what kind of anthropologist are you and how did you become an anthropologist? Well, I'm a biological anthropologist and I became an anthropologist because as an undergraduate, I went to my dean and I said, I'm interested in this class and that class and this other class. And I went through the whole course catalog and explained what it was that I wanted to do but that I wasn't being fulfilled by with my other courses. And he said, it sounds like you need to go to the anthropology department. So I went to the anthropology department, and I took a course in cultural anthropology, and I loved it. And then I took a course in biological anthropology, and I loved it even more. And then I took a course in primatology, and I loved that even more. And so therefore, I'm now a primatologist. That's awesome. I feel like that tends to be the way it goes, where you start off general in anthropology, and then start narrowing it down. Right. And, and part of it was having a very inspiring professor at the time who, who really got me interested. And then I did a field experience over the summer and followed monkeys, ran through the bushes, chasing them, collecting data, and realized that that's what I wanted to do. That sounds like a really awesome experience. So what, as a primatologist, what does that mean? What sort of work do you do? So as a primatologist, I study non-human primates from a biological and evolutionary perspective. So it's it's within anthropology, because we, in theory, are studying non-human primates to learn more about humans, and that that's why we're in an anthropology department as a whole or in, in that field. But many primatologists actually are in biology or, or psychology departments. They're also studying non-human primates, but sometimes from more of a physiological perspective or strictly ecological, perhaps, the goal with primatology within anthropology is to ultimately be able to say something about humans. What is your current work focusing on? So what I've been working on for about 20 years is a field study of Hamadryas baboons in Ethiopia. We're studying various aspects of their behavior and ecology and now moving into genetics and uh, other uh, aspects of physiology like endocrinology. So it's, it's a broad-based behavioral biology project focusing on wild baboons in Ethiopia and involves data collection in the field. And then we bring samples back to various labs for analysis. And we also analyze the behavioral data and try to draw conclusions uh, about their social behavior and their ecology and their biology. So you just mentioned endocrinology. Can you talk about that a little bit more for our listeners? So endocrinology is the study of hormones, and specifically we're interested in socio-endocrinology, which is the relationship between hormones and social behavior. For, for example, um, one of the questions we're interested in is whether grooming behavior and more grooming behavior, which is, I'm sure so everyone's familiar with monkeys picking through the fur of other monkeys looking for insects and dirt and little pieces of skin and they pick them out. It's mainly a social activity. So for example, um, we're interested in whether grooming behavior is tied to stress levels. So in other words, 
do individuals that have stronger grooming relationships with other individuals, as in baboon friendships, do those individuals have lower stress levels as detected by hormones? So what are you finding so far? We, have, we don't have any results yet. We're still working on this. Okay. This, is a, this is a collaborative project with a, a laboratory at the University of Michigan. Uh, Dr. Jacinta Beener uh, runs an endocrinology lab there. I don't do the lab work myself, but she's, she's my collaborator on that. Um, so we don't have results yet, but I suspect that we will, in fact, find that stronger grooming relationships do reduce stress levels. But absolutely, when I'm watching baboons, if I'm watching them groom, my stress levels are reduced. I can feel it when I'm watching them. I love watching them groom. That's, that's, that's my favorite thing. I can see that being absolutely relaxing. Can you walk us through what a day in the field is like? So what your data collection looks like, how you're recording it, what you're actually observing? So basically, in the field, we need to take advantage of the mornings and the evenings primarily, for hamadryas in particular. Because during the day, they're doing a lot of traveling, and we try to keep up with them all day, but we often lose them. So we get up at 4, usually leave camp by 5, to try to get to the baboon sleeping site by the time they're awake and moving around, which can be something between 5.45 and 6.30 or so, depending on the season. And then we watch them wake up. We collect behavioral data, who's grooming whom, who's sitting next to whom, who's fighting with whom, what females have been moved around within the group, and that's a whole other aspect of their behavior. They have a very complex social system. But the other thing we do is collect samples. So we collect fecal samples from them. And with those samples, we can then look at both DNA and hormones. So we can then integrate our behavioral observations with the physiological data and the genetic data from the fecal samples so that we can learn more about the interaction between biology and behavior. That sounds really cool. Um, can you talk a little bit about what their social structure is like? I know you just said it's complex. So what's a general group size? And it's, it's very complex. So hamadryas have one of the most complex social systems in primates. It's called a multi-level society. It consists of several layers. So this, the smallest layer is a one male unit. Some might call it a harem, although I prefer to avoid that term because of the human connotations, but it's basically one adult male and some number of females and their dependent offspring. Then there are these extra males that move around, bachelor males, we sometimes call them, in homodryous society they're called follower males and solitary males. And those two types of males may either be attached to a one male unit, and that would be called a follower male, or they're unattached to any one male unit, and that would be a solitary male. So there's three different types of males. One are the leader males of these one male units, and then there's the follower males, which are attached to a one male unit, but they don't mate with the females. And then there are the solitary males who are not attached to any one male unit. So all of the females are within a one male unit, but the males are floating around. And so but then above the layer of those one male units, there are these things called clans, which are associations of one male units and a bunch of those floater males. But they're not very visible unless you actually look at the detailed behavioral data and figure out who's most often next to whom. They're, they're sort of a, you know, you, you know who, which clan you're in, but it's not clear spatially. What is clear spatially is the band level, which is 
yet another layer. So the baboons that you see moving through the savanna, which might be a group of 200 baboons, that would be a band. Within that band, there are in fact these clans that show up. If you look at behavioral data, you can see these associations among males. And then within the clans, there are the one male units, which are more spatially visible. They're the little, little, little units moving around within a bigger group. So it's, it's, it's very complex, and there's in fact even a fourth layer. And that's called a troop, and that is an association between two bands at a sleeping cliff. And lest you think I made all this up, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> the three of these levels were discovered by Hans Kummer, who can be called the father of Hamadryas baboons, I suppose. He was working in the 1960s. He recently passed away. He, he's, he was Swiss. Um, he discovered three of these layers, and then a student of his, Jean-Jacques Abeglin, who did research during the 1970s, discovered the clan layer of social organization. And we've since supported all of those layers and, and basically that, that, that structure that Kumar and Abeglin originally described with our data. Wow. So you just mentioned 200 baboons in a clan, you said, right? Or in a, in a band. In a band. So you just mentioned 200 baboons in a band. Yes. So how do you keep track of individual units? That's very difficult. With each one mill unit, it, it actually makes it easier, if you think about it. If you had 200 baboons that are all milling around randomly, it would be harder to tell individuals apart. What you have is a structure, and that structure makes it easier. So you might have, say, you know, 10 one male units that have two females. And you might have five one male units that have one female. You might have seven one male units that have three females, and so on. So first you can see how many females there are, and that helps you. That narrows it down, because then you can you know, say that you're learning who everyone is in the group. You then go to your list of, okay, let's just look at the list of the, the one million units with two individuals. Figure out which one that is. And that's based on individual characteristics. So variation in fur color, tail shape, body shape, the way they hold their bodies, facial features, facial color. The ears are also really, really useful. Not in males, because males have a mane like a lion, so you can't really see their ears very well. But for females, the, the ears are very useful for IDs, and that's related to the fact that females are bitten by males a lot, which is yet another interesting thing about their behavior. So males coerce females into one male units by biting them on the back of their head and neck, and they often get their ears as well. So females have all sorts of scars and rips and tears in their ears and they're all different from each other mostly right so it's so it's really useful to tell them apart looking at those ears do females change one male units then depending on this coercion they do so this is the way they move around so every in every species right we 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 um we assume that one sex needs to disperse from one group to another group for reproduction so as to prevent inbreeding right so with hamadryas males generally stay in a band they generally don't leave the group. Whereas with other baboons, males disperse. They move to another group for, for purposes of reproduction. In Hamadryas, males are phylopatric, which means they stay in the band in which they were born, by and large. And it's females that disperse 
to a new band. But females don't disperse of their own accord. They are dispersed by males. So males take over individual females from other males. So that's what these follower and solitary males are wandering around waiting, waiting to do. Basically keeping their eye out, looking at the leader males and the females, and waiting for an opportunity to take one of those females. And they're taken over one at a time. So it's not a whole group. So in some species you get a whole group of group of females that is um, where you have one male attached to them. Another male comes in and takes over that position and gets the whole group. In Hamadryas, it's different. In Hamadryas, a solitary or follower male will target a single female in a one male unit, attempt to take that female away from her current leader male. So he'll be fighting with the leader male at the same time that he's trying to coerce the female. So it's sort of this dual effort. And then he'll either get her or he won't. I imagine that also affects the hormone levels as well. Absolutely, yes. And that is another aspect of endocrinology that we're looking at, um, basically the the physiological reactions to these takeovers. So after a, a female is taken over, what happens, there's a few things that happen. Um, if she has an infant at the time, the infant is far more likely to die. And she also will come into estrus, which is like heat in a, in a dog, right? It's, it's, it's when they are uh, close to ovulation, in theory, when they have these sexual swellings where the rear end uh, swells up with water. They come into estrus until they get pregnant, and then they lactate for a while, they're nursing for a while. So they usually only come into estrus when they're near ovulation. But what happens after a takeover is they come into estrus within two weeks, no matter what, whether they are in fact ovulating or not. So there's something physiological that's going on that's probably tied to stress. It's probably tied to the stress of the takeover, and it's leading to this fake estrus where they, are, they then come into reproductive condition and they mate with the new male. So their infant's more likely to die. They come into this, this fake estrus, or, uh, often called pseudoestrus. And then a third thing that we think might be going on that is going on in geladas, which is another species of monkey with a similarly complex multilevel society, is that if a pregnant female is taken over, she will then abort. And we also think if that's happening, then that would also be due to the stress of the takeover. So these are all ways that these takeovers are affecting a female's physiology and essentially get costing her in, in, in fitness terms. So I find this really interesting, especially considering our season two focus on childhood. Does this relate at all to the age of the infant? Right. So, and it, it seems that if an infant is involved in a takeover, so if an infant's mom is taken over, the age of the infant really matters. So, if the infant is younger than six months, it's more likely than not to die, whether it is due to infanticide by that new leader male or simply neglect is unclear. We don't have enough observations to know for sure what's happening in all of these cases. But if an infant is older than six months, 
then it's more like much more likely to survive. So that the cases of infant either infanticide or infant mortality that we see after takeovers are generally when infants are, are younger than six months. So the age of the infant definitely matters. Is that related to their ability to be independent or start becoming closer to independent? I think what it's related to is the fact that if we think about this in evolutionary terms, and if we think about this as behavior by the male and female that would either be that would be reproductive strategy on the part of males or a counter strategy on the part of females. Uh, we can think about a female's period of lactation. So, she has a nursing infant, which will be up to a certain age. When she's taken over, if that infant dies, she will then come back into reproductive condition so that she can conceive sooner. If her, then she would have otherwise. So the infant dying, whether it be killed or neglected, the infant dying will actually shorten her time to her next conception. So if the infant is under six months, then that means that difference between the infant dying now versus later versus not at all um, is going to actually shorten her lactation. But if the infant is over six months, then her lactation period is not going to be shortened Anyway, it'll probably be the same as it would have if she had just carried on nursing this infant, so it doesn't matter. So it's really, it's really about shortening that lactation period. And that it, in, that's, of course, in the best interest of the male who takes her over because he will benefit if she comes into Astra soon and conceives soon and his, his infant with her uh, is born sooner. Then he can start building his own unit. Exactly. Yeah. What is the next step of your work at this point? Well, we are, uh, one thing we've done recently to simply try to keep track of our baboons in Ethiopia um, is put GPS collars on them, which helps us find them. So one of the difficulties of working there is finding the baboons. They have an enormously large home range, they blend into the environment very well. They're often <laughs> hard to see, even with 200 of them. And we and they have multiple sleeping sites. So uh, it's w- one of our biggest challenges is just knowing where to find them. So say that we're following them on a, a given day, and then we, we lose them. We don't necessarily know which sleeping site they end up at. We can check various sites that evening and then the next morning, but some of them we can't get to in time. Um, or it's, it's too complicated to get them. We have to drive and then hike to get to certain sleeping sites. So these GPS collars are very, have been very useful and w- will hopefully continue to be useful in terms of actually finding them. So that's one sort of technological issue that we're working on at the moment is getting collars on a few of them just so that we can find out where they are so that we can, we can get to them. And then once we get to them, we, we collect behavioral, and behavioral data and, and fecal samples. Um, but um, but where I'm trying to develop more collaborations now, um, the endocrine work is progressing uh, in collaboration with, with Jacinta Beener's lab at the University of Michigan. And then um, we're also probably going to start working on nutritional ecology in collaboration with Jessica Rothman at Hunter College, also part of the City University of New York. Um, and, and that will be a way that we can look at in more detail what these baboons are eating 
and the food choices that they make and, uh, and, and what they're getting from the, from the foods in, the, in that habitat. I look forward to, to hearing how it pans out. Uh, thank you, Dr. Spadell, for joining us today. It was really great to have you on our podcast. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. In the meantime, subscribe to the podcast and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at A Story of Us OSU, or check out our website at anthropology.osu.edu. Don't forget to leave us a review of the show on iTunes. Remember, the more reviews we have, the easier it is for people to find the show and fall in love with it just as much as you did. As always, for our listeners, uh, we hope you join us next time as we continue to explore a story of us, our humanity, history, and department. Oh,